Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we are going to continue our discussion where we left off in the previous episode. We are discussing a book called A Philosophy of Software Design by John R. Osterhout. In the last episode, we got up to the start of chapter 13. We were discussing Professor Osterhout's opinions of commons. Since his opinion highly contradicts Uncle Bob's, it is really interesting to review this information. We talked about the four excuses not to write comments, which I feel come straight from the clean code book. John says there are four excuses, and they are, and I quote, 1. Good code is self-documenting. 2. I don't have time to write comments. 3. Comments get out of date and become misleading. And four, the comments I have seen are all worthless, so why bother? Professor Oosterhout has a very strong opinion about comments. He says that without comments in your code, you cannot reduce complexity and use abstraction. And Uncle Bob would disagree on that, I think, since he's all about good naming and extracting things out so the code reads well. Like a newspaper style of writing we have discussed multiple times in earlier episodes now. I also injected my own opinion to this, so I think it was a really interesting episode. So go back to the previous one if you haven't listened to it. And in the end, we found some middle ground, since John wants lots of comments and Uncle Bob wants you to write as less as you can. But the interesting thing here is that Professor Ausserhout is talking about comments, but he's mostly talking about comments that are used to generate documentation and show up in IntelliSense. And in a C-sharp context, these will be the summaries you can add to fields, properties, methods, and classes, for example. These summaries contain comments that augment the entity you are commenting with additional information. The good part of these comments is that they will show up as you are typing the code. This way, the summaries will show you additional information and thus you do not need to read the actual implementation of the thing you are referencing. This will indeed raise the level of abstraction since you do not need to read the implementation. But yeah, Uncle Bob wants you to write lots of small functions with descriptive names, so you don't need to read the implementation. Um, This is where they differ, but alright. So, in clean code there's also a chapter about comments. And Uncle Bob burns a lot of comments that he thinks are bad. But he also points out some of the comments that are generally accepted, like legal comments, comments that describe the rationale of the code, or like warnings for threat safety, for example, and comments that serve documentation generation purposes. So I think that since Professor Oosterhout is mostly talking about summaries, and Uncle Bob finds communication Uh, comments for documentation generation purposes generally useful, and I think so too by the way, we can all agree on the fact that these summaries or comments are good. So we have to assume that when Professor Oosterhout is talking about comments, he's talking about summaries, unless he specifically mentions something else. If we assume that, uh, we don't have to disagree as much, I think. And In the previous episode, we started to talk about uh, chapter 13, which is called Comments should describe the things that aren't obvious from the code. 
and in this chapter he will explain the good types of comments and how to write them. There are still some contradictions compared to clean code in here, which I will point, point out for you guys. And interestingly, Professor Ausserhout specifically mentions the fact that you should follow conventions set by tooling to generate documentation, like javadoc for Java, Doxygen for like C, C Sharp and C++, or Godoc for Go, for example. So if you comment code and they appear in such tools, I think the comments are worthy and I think Uncle Bob would also agree with us. But on the other hand, if we are talking about seemingly random inline comments or massive comment blocks scattered through the code that do not show up in your IDE through IntelliSense or documentation tooling, then I would deem them worthless since you might never read them since you just don't know that they exist. And also make sure you do not add like uh, redundant summaries uh, to, to properties or fields like saying uh, player above a class called player that does not provide any new meaningful information uh, and tools like Doxygen are perfectly capable to inject the exact same thing anyway. But alright, let's continue where we left off last time. And if you have not listened to the previous episode, please do, since you might be missing some context and might just not understand the angle that I'm coming from. I tried to explain it a bit, but go back if you have not listened to the previous episode. So, let's start with this first advice on how to write good comments. And this is right up my alley, because I completely agree. And as a matter of fact, I just talked about this, and I think Uncle Bob will even agree on this as well. It says, don't repeat the code. Yeah, as Uncle Bob said in Clean Code, comments that repeat code are redundant and worthless, even when you use them for generation purposes uh, with tools like Doxygen, they are worthless. If you have a comment that just repeats the code, then Doxygen will be able to do the exact same thing and you will end up with the exact same result anyway. So if you do not add any comments, Doxygen will generate documentation, which is just a, rep uh, just a repetition of the code which makes sense because that's easy to generate. And he says something interesting about this as well. And, uh, and that is that if you simply repeat the code in the comment, you are roughly at the same level of abstraction. And comments that reside roughly on the same level of abstraction are rarely useful. I think this is a really nice observation. And yeah, Professor Ausserhout is right. It makes total sense to provide comments that are on a slightly lower level of abstraction so you can provide the reader with just that little bit of extra information without him having him or her having to read the code. And he then raises the first red flag in a while and it says, and I quote, if the information in a comment is already obvious from the code next to the comment, then the comment isn't helpful. One example of this is when the comment uses the same words that make up the name of the thing it is describing. And the first step to provide better comments is to use different words in the comment for those in the name of the entity being described. You should carefully choose words that provide additional information about the meaning of the entity you are commenting rather than repeating its name or, or, or the implementation. And next up, he continues with something that I hinted at just a minute ago. 
and that is low-level comments at precision. This makes it easier for a, re for a user or reader of the code to understand it. If these comments describing the implementation of something at just a slightly lower level of abstraction pop up during development through IntelliSense, they can provide a, uh, a little bit more ease to programming uh, of your game itself. And Professor Ausserhout basically says that comments augment the code by providing information at a different level of detail. And this is indeed something good comments do. I think Uncle Bob will agree with this as well. Although he's really fanatic about removing comments from code that do not belong there. But in clean code, he points out the comments that are used for generation, uh, uh, documentation generation purposes are like accepted. So good comments provide precision by clarifying the exact meaning of the code. Plus they also offer intuition, such as the reasoning behind the code. Comments um, that are on the same level of abstraction are likely to repeat the code, which is not what we want, since they are useless anyway. So, Professor Oosterhout says that precision is most useful when commenting variable declarations, such as member variables or method arguments and return values. Comments can fill in the missing details about things like what are the units for this variable? Are the boundary conditions inclusive or exclusive? If a null is permitted, and what does that imply? And if a variable uh, refers to a resource that must eventually be freed or closed, uh, who is responsible for freeing or closing it? Are there certain properties that are always true for a variable or invariants, such as this list always contains at least one entry? You could, of course, figure all of this out by reading the code, but that would take up a lot of time. And I somewhat agree, since most of the time I would avoid, for example, allowing null to be passed uh, as a parameter to a function. Plus I would try to abstract away the side effects like freeing up or closing resources. But yeah, John programs a lot in C++, which I think is the reason that he uh, put this in here. And in C++, uh, of course, uh, you have to do a lot of a lot more resource management than in C sharp because C sharp is a managed language. We have a garbage collector, but then again, if you open a file stream and don't close it, you can still run into these problems. But I would still try to abstract that side effect away. But things like documenting units or boundary conditions, like inclusive or exclusive uh, in indexes, are generally nice to add as comments. Although uh, units of a variable might also be part of your domain model. So you simply uh, use some object which will imply what unit it has. But yeah, alright. I agree uh, that, for example, if you have some kind of stopwatch function, um, you could add a summary saying what the unit of the timing is. Is it milliseconds or seconds? So would you supply the number 1000 or simply 1 to the function? That would be nice to see in your IDE through IntelliSense, right? And Professor Austerhout does say that you should keep an eye out for comments that provide vague details about the entity they are describing. Remember that one of the reasons to add comments is to add precision. So be precise in your comments. He says you should be thinking about nouns and verbs while 
commenting a variable. In other words, in other words, focus on what the variable represents, not how it is manipulated. And next up is another section about what comments, good comments do, and that is higher level comments enhance intuition. This is the second way good comments can be helpful. So comments describing lower levels, uh, lower level concepts promote precision, but comments that describe higher level concepts improve intuition. These comments uh, omit details and help the reader understand the overall intent and structure of the code. And John says that these comments are commonly used for comments inside methods or interfaces. And well, that's pretty interesting. He says that comments describing higher level concepts are often used inside methods. However, inside methods, you are often dealing with lower level stuff. But commenting interfaces with high level uh, summaries uh, that describe the abstraction, I can pretty much understand. And also, again, because they show up in your IDE, the summaries that is. But let's continue and see what the what the has to say as well. And he says that high level comments are more difficult to write than low level comments because you must think about the code in a certain way. Yeah. Um, I think I agree. Uh, describing things in an abstract matters can be difficult to, uh, difficult to put on screen. However, having made a proper domain model will help you out with such comments, since you can talk uh, in your defined ubiquitous uh, language. And Professor Aushout also says that high-level comments are difficult to write because we engineers tend to be uh, very detail-oriented. We like details and managing lots of them. It's essential for a good engineer. <laughs> well, yeah, this is really great. And he's totally right. He then also says that great engineers also have the ability to step back a little bit and think about the details uh, of a system at a higher level of abstraction. And yeah, this is totally true. We as engineers are certainly obsessed with details, but we also need to create proper architecture and design. We need to be able to switch perspectives rapidly. So a good comment that describes high-level concept does two things. One, it provides an abstract description of what the code does. And two, it describes in high-level terms why the code is executed. And I think... These are two very valid arguments for high-level comments. You might add to summaries of classes or interfaces or even methods. I just still can't see why you would uh, inline such comments inside, uh, inside functions. In the book, John shows some examples and they are all multi-line comments like block comments inside a function. These are the comments that do not show up in your uh, documentation or your IDE. So you must read them uh, you must read the code anyway to find out what it does. These are the kinds of comments I usually just delete or rewrite and put them as a summary to the function if they make sense. But all right. Um next up is another type of good comment and that is implementation comments. And what and why and not how. These are the kinds of comments that only appear inside methods to help the readers understand how they work internally. Hmm. 
this is what I talked about just a second ago. And these are the comments I usually delete as soon as I see them. Since they, yeah, how cliche, I think that the code should be self-documenting. And these inlined comments will get out of date in a large team. When we use automated refactoring tools, code might get refactored in many places, but the act of refactoring will not change the comments, so they will become out of date because of it. And John says that the main goal of implementing comments is to help the readers understand what the code is doing, not how it does it. I think this is generally how comments should be written. If you understand uh, the what and the why of the code, you can easily find out how it does it by reading the code. Since, well, yeah, we are programmers and we understand most code. But sometimes the what and the why might be vague and we might not know uh, why we are implementing some feature in the first place. And he gives an example of a comment that describes what happens in each iteration of a for loop. I personally, well, heavily disagree here. This seems like nonsense to me. These are the exact comments uh, Uncle Bob will tell you to delete quickly because of reasons we have talked about earlier. And Professor Oosterhout follows this up with some rather interesting concept, and that is that you might provide um, some extra comments when you fix the bug to, uh, in the system. But the code to fix the bug is not entirely obvious. You might want to add a comment there saying the this is particular like uh, obscure or unclear, unclear code is needed to circumvent some buggy scenario. I think this might generally be helpful, yeah. But then again, I would also like always try my absolute best to refactor the code in such a way that the bug fix makes sense from just uh, a code point of view, and I don't need to write the comment. But these, uh, there are these cases that you can't, and just uh, just you commit the crime of writing an inline comment anyway. And he then says, for larger methods, you might want to add comments for the local variables in that function. And you focus your comment on what the variables represent and not how it is manipulated in the code. And this again highly contradicts the advice in clean code, right? First of all, clean code tells you not to write large functions. Separate them out and extract smaller private functions that level the extraction level. And second, Uncle Bob does not uh, want you to use inline comments to describe local variables of a function. Use self-describing names and make your code readable that way. Remember the chapter about naming things as well. Choose names that best describe what the code re represents. Names must be intention-revealing. This is exactly what John says you should do through comments. Why not do it through code uh, directly? And also note that for local variables and functions, you can choose a long name if that fits right. These variables are not exposed uh, to the outside of the function, so you can make them as long and descriptive as you can. Remember Uncle Bob's advice that the length of a name corresponds to the length of a scope. So for variables, a short name is only used in a small scope, yet a long name is used in larger scopes. And for functions, this is the other way around. Use short names when functions are used often, and use longer names when they are used less, like private methods. 
And then there is the last type of comment um, in this chapter, and those are comments that communicate cross-module design decisions. And Professor Austerhaus says uh, that in a perfect world, every design decision would be encapsulated within a single class. But that does rarely happen. In object-oriented programming, we often separate things, and sometimes the nature of the problem is something distributed. Think about network protocols. They are implemented in both the sender and receiver, which are probably in different places. These kinds of design decisions are often important, subtle and complex, and account for a good portion of bugs. So good documentation for this is crucial. And yeah, I totally agree, especially with the example of network protocols or APIs, for example. Think about the massive amount of value the open API specification brings. And implementation of uh, open API would be Swagger, for example. This is really, really nice documentation, yet this does not rely on comments per se. You can extend open API docs with additional comments, but you rarely see that happening. But then again, since web APIs are implemented at some place, and consumed at potentially many other places, you really require this documentation. So I totally agree with John that this needs to be documented somewhere. May that be in some kind of uh, open API spec, wikis or confluence page, for example. I'm not really sure if you would document this all in comments because once it's deployed, you cannot read the comments. But yeah, let's continue with the book and find out. And he says that the biggest challenge with cross-module documentation is finding a place to put it, where it naturally can be discovered by developers. Great, he just confirmed my suspicion. And I feel comments would not be the best place for this kind of documentation. And he gives an example of uh, some system he was building, where the system defines some status values. These values were implemented as an enum, and thus, when you needed to check what they meant, or when you needed to add new status values, you went to the enum file, and there was the comments describing everything, plus a little guide on uh, what steps to take to implement the new status. This seems totally reasonable to me. I do add summary comments about, uh, above enum values often, so I agree with this example. I also want to point out that we've had a system uh, with similar uh, problems and we also put comments in the code for documentation purposes. But these comments were for ourselves and not for clients uh, or users of our code because they would only get a compiled binary uh, file and not the actual source code. But we were building uh, a Unity 3D application which ran on a massive 4K screen with stereoscopic rendering in an amusement park and players would be able to remote control uh, their players from tablets that were mounted on uh, like the, the, the little cart they were sitting in. And we implemented the communication between the ride and the tablets of the players and the game running on some server rack with UDP. And UDP is a fast yet uh, unreliable network protocol to send messages back and forth. So each message would have a specific identifier based on some bytes and those were the things we commented in the code. But we also documented them based on the specs of what we got from our partner who actually built the ride. So the docs were 
in some PDF, I think, having the messages uh, types documented in the code meant that we, did not, we just did not have to open uh, this large PDF file and search for them every single time. So this really improved the speed at which we could work since we had these comments inside our source code. And Professor Oosterhout explains that still these cross-module comments are awkward uh, in their use and I, yeah, I agree. I think they should be documented elsewhere like your wiki or confluence or some PDF as I described in the example just a second ago. And he also says that if you document it elsewhere, developers might not read it. And yeah, I agreed again. Developers will probably only read the docs when they are stuck. So I think you need to communicate with developers and tell them to actually look at that file. And maybe a good way to do it is to add a large disclaimer in the readme uh, of your uh, project. Um, which points to some wiki. And I think nowadays having a proper readme file in your project is really required for good communication. So in your readme file, you can refer to some external docs. And I think readmes are generally read by developers since they also often include information about the install procedures and like simple example on how to, how to use the project. And John also hints at this. He says that he experimented with adding a single file to a repo which is called design decisions and documenting all of his stuff in there. This makes the documentation in a single place which is very useful. And he does say however that when you do this the docs are no longer with the code and thus you have the risk uh, that developers won't read them. So I think you should uh, rename the design decisions file to the readme.md uh, file and be done with it. And also remember that Markdown supports adding links to other files in your repo or external sources. Um, you can point that uh, you can you can point that external sources very easily through URLs, for example. So to wrap this chapter up. The goal of comments is to ensure that the structure and behavior of the system is obvious to readers, so they can quickly find the information they need and make modifications to the system with confidence uh, that they will work. And John has described four types of comments that are useful, and I agree with him on these concepts in a general sense, but on some details I don't. So let's step back a little bit again. And as I said in the beginning of this episode, I think when we assume that many of the comments he's talking about are actually summaries on fields, properties, methods and classes, then I agree with him with most of what he said. I just think that we have uh, far better resources for actual documentation of games or software programs. I mean, you're going to put documentation about some system in your game design document, not the source code itself. This might include really complex algorithms for game systems, uh, for example. And I also would like to point out that although practices in clean code advise you to delete many comments, there are still comments that are deemed acceptable. These comments include comments that explain the rationale and intent, legal comments, and comments that are used for generation documentation purposes. So I think Although there are many contradictions in these two books, Clean Code and the Philosophy of Software Design, 
there is some middle ground here where I would uh, agree with both parties, and I think Uncle Bob and Pr Professor Asterhout might agree as well. And we also need to consider the fact that John speaks about C and C++ in this book, and a little bit of Java here and there. But I think the majority is targeted at C and C++. These languages are on a lower level uh, of abstraction than C Sharp. For example, in C and C++, you need to manage your memory, and you need to do a lot of pointer arithmetic, and you can do this in C Sharp as well, but generally we don't. And I think C and C++ require a bit more documentation because of this fact. In these low-level languages, you have a lot more details to manage, and thus the code might not be as obvious as uh, a higher-level language such as C Sharp, for example. So, if you are managing like buffers, pointers, and memory, you might uh, add some comments to this to explain the code, uh, what the code is doing, um, and why you are doing it. But enough about comments. Let's continue with chapter fourteen. Uh, choosing names. And again, the title already spoils what the chapter is about. When we think back to clean code, there is also a chapter dedicated to choosing good names for many concepts like fields, or properties, variables, functions, arguments to these functions, classes, and even many uh, Unity 3D specific resources like prefabs, scriptable objects, models, textures, and so forth. The main giveaway from the chapter about names in clean code was that names should be intention-revealing. They must communicate the correct domain objects, and there are some practices to do this correctly, like maintaining a ubiquitous language by referencing domain-driven design concepts, such as uh, using nouns for objects and using verbs, or a combination of a verb and a noun for function names and adhering to generally accepted standards for things, like starting boolean fields or properties with an is or a has prefix. This renaming a boolean calls moving to is moving, for example. Or that the scope of things will relate to the naming of things, so for variables, the smaller the scope, the smaller the name of the variable. And the best example here is a variable in a loop, so i for for loops. For functions, this scoping is the other way around. The larger the scope, the smaller the name should be, since when the scope is large, uh, you are probably going to be calling that function very often. So many public-facing functions often have short names, but private functions often have longer names. And Uncle Bob has a lot more really great advice in his clean code book, uh, which we all covered in like the first or second episode of the Clean Code podcast. Uh, you can go back and have a listen, or you can pick up your copy of the book and read it yourself. But let's see what Professor Oudstehout's advice is for choosing good names. I honestly cannot really remember anymore. But let's uh, see and compare it to Clean Code. And he starts off by saying that good naming is a really underrated aspect of software design. And I totally agree. The domain-driven design movement did a really great effort to counter this, but still you often see badly named code. And he then says something I think Uncle Bob would agree with, and that is, and I quote, Good names are a form of documentation. They make code easier to understand, 
and they reduced the need for other documentation and uh, it makes it easier to detect errors, end quote. This is literally exactly what Uncle Bob teaches you to do in clean code. Clean code is intention revealing and self-describing. That's the entire purpose of Uncle Bob's clean code book. And John says that bad names will lead to bugs and increase complexity. And since we continue to write code and add features, this complexity will grow and thus have a significant impact on complexity and manageability. And I totally agree. And I bet Uncle Bob would agree as well. I think both of them are still on the same line here. And next, Professor Oosterhout gives a simple example of bad naming uh, and how uh, they can cause bugs. And he says that bad names can have severe consequences. And the example he gives is about an operating system he developed together with some graduate students. They would use the name block for referring to physical block numbers on disk, but also to logical blocks, uh, block numbers within a file. And I think you can feel the bug coming, right? There was a bug where the block referred to a logical block number, but it was used in a physical block number context. So they renamed such variables to file block and disk block to make them more descriptive. This is indeed a really obscure bug you will only find after a long time of debugging. And Professor Ausserhout says he spent six months trying to find this bug. And he says he just had to, since he considers any unresolved bug uh, to be an intolerable personal insult. And <laughs> he's so right. Bugs you wrote yourself into your own code are indeed definitely an insult. I feel the same way when it happens to me. And the bad part is that these bugs often occur in the code that is really hard to test. So they might be just on the edges of your bounded context, for example. So the example he gave was about bad naming causing a large bug that took six months of Professor Ausserhout himself to fix it, to be fixed. Now, that's... That's an investment, right? The key giveaway here is that good names are really important. But unfortunately, many developers do not spend much time thinking about names. Most of them tend to take the first name that comes to mind. And we talked about this in previous episodes as well. Nowadays, we have very powerful IDEs with automated refactoring tools. So there are just no excuses for bad naming anymore. You can just hit your rename shortcut in your IDE and the tool will do all the code changes for you. So Shift F6 is a really is really baked into my muscle memory. And that's rename and writer with IntelliJ keybinds, by the way. So John says, and I quote, you shouldn't settle for names that are just reasonably close. Take a bit of extra time to choose great names, with, uh, which are precise, unambiguous, and intuitive. The extra attention will pay for out for itself quickly, and over time you will learn to choose good names uh, quickly. End quote. And I totally agree with him. Good names make code a lot more readable and maintainable. And if they match your domain correctly, you will increase the abstraction level, in my opinion. 
And next up is a very short section about the goal of good names being able to create an image in the mind of the reader about the nature of the thing being named. Wow. Um, a good name must be intention revealing, as Uncle Bob always says. And John says you can ask yourself the following question when naming things. If someone sees the name in isolation without seeing the declaration or its documentation or any other code that uses the name, how closely will they be able to guess what the name refers to? Uh, is there some other name that can paint a clearer picture? And I think this is a really good question to ask yourself. Having precision in your naming will really add to the value of the code and reduce the complexity of the system. Although it will still sometimes be rather difficult to name things since some domains are inherently hard to understand. But I agree that you should be able to name things so the readers who are reading it in isolation without seeing its declaration or documentation should be able to understand what the name means. But I suppose some domain knowledge should always be required. And John also specifically says that names are a form of abstraction. And I totally agree. And I bet Uncle Bob would as well. And like other forms of abstraction, the best names are those that focus uh, attention on what is most important about the underlying entity while omitting details that are less important. John talks about this in one of the earlier chapters already. Um, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes about this book, go back and have a listen. So next is a section called Names Should Be Precise. And Professor Ousterhout says that good names should have two properties, precision and consistency. And most names are too vague or generic and thus do not provide much meaningful information. This is something Uncle Bob talks a lot about as well. A variable called time does not tell you much in most situations. Not even uh, like a stopwatch class, for example. Does time mean like total time or lap time or some interval? Uh, I don't know. And John provides some examples of bad names like calling a variable uh, like blink status, which referred to the cursor carrot blinking state. The code for some text editor project. But the word... Uh, status being tangled onto the end of the variable is far too vague since status does not uh, provide meaningful information. What does this word status mean? John renamed the variable to cursor visible and I think we can do better and my suggestion would be to rename it to is cursor uh, visible since we are dealing with a boolean here. And it's an accepted standard that a boolean uh, to prefix it with an is or a has prefix. But okay, another example of a bad name uh, and where I definitely, uh, where I'm definitely guilty of myself are variable names that have, that are just called result um, as some value being returned from a method. First, it might be misleading since result might not even be the actual return value of the function which is pretty funny because uh, I definitely, I'm definitely guilty about of this. And second, <laughs> a variable named result does not provide any information about what it means or contains. And that's totally true as well. 
And Professor Ausserhout then raises another red flag and it says, and I quote, If a variable or method name is broad enough to refer to many different things, then it doesn't convey much information to the developer, and the underlying entity is more likely to be misused. End quote. And yeah, he is totally right. And he then continues with the fact that there are some exceptions, like choosing variables like i or j for loops. This is the industry standard, and Uncle Blob uh, says the exact same thing in clean code. So I'm sure he, he'll agree with this as well. If you choose other variable names in loops like A and B, I can guarantee uh, I can guarantee you people will be confused. Like why are they named A and B and not I and J? And these variable names will probably be renamed at first sight. And Professor Oosterhout then says something really, really interesting, and I quote, If you find it difficult to come up with a name for a particular variable that is precise, intuitive, and not too long, this is a red flag. It suggests that the variable may not have a clear definition or purpose. When this happens, consider alternative uh, refactorings. For example, Perhaps you are trying to use a single variable to represent several things. If so, separating the representation into multiple variables may result in a simpler definition for each variable. The process of choosing good names can improve your design by identifying weaknesses. End quote. And yeah, he is so right about this. If you find yourself in this situation where you simply cannot come up with a proper name for something, you might want to reconsider your design and maybe refactor it uh, so you can remove this thing you find difficult to name uh, and just remove it. I've ran into this issue before, um, but uh, yeah, I can't really give a nice concrete example from the top of my mind. And he then raises another red flag, which refers to the section I just quoted, and it goes, if it's hard to refine a simple name for a variable or method, that creates a clear image of the underlying object, that's a hint that the underlying object may not have a clean design. And yeah, that's right. Um, next up is the concept that you should use consistent names. And Professor Ausserhout says that in many systems, specific variables or class names are used over and over again. And you should stick with those and not come up with the same ran some, some random name uh, each time you use something. And this highly correlates with Uncle Bob's advice in clean code. Uncle Bob also uh, says you should be consistent about names for classes. So don't have classes like player singleton enemy controller and game manager which refer to the same thing uh, suffix uh, just suffix them all with singleton controller or manager but not use these different suffixes to mean the same thing uh, some kind of like singleton class and john says that consistent naming reduces the cognitive load on a developer once a developer has seen some name in some context, they can reuse that knowledge and instantly make assumptions when they see the name used in different contexts. And this is so true. And he then continues with three requirements for consistent names. And I quote, uh, First, always use the common name for a given purpose. 
Second, never use the common name for anything other than the given purpose. And third, make sure that the purpose is narrow enough that all variables with that name have the same behavior. End quote. And this is such great advice. I, it's similar to clean code, yet different. Uncle Bob gives somewhat, uh, somewhat the same advice, but I think Professor Ousterhout articulates it very well here. Especially rule 3. Make sure that the purpose is narrow enough that all variables with the name have the same behavior. I think this is a great rule, since it really makes you think about names well enough. And consistency is an important thing in naming. And I would also extend these rules not just to variables, but also fields, properties, methods, and classes. And this chapter ends with, is it, with a discussion about the Go, the Golang style guide, uh, which wants developers to do the exact opposite of what we have just talked about. In Go, variables should be as short uh, as you can. Um, so, for example, you have ch for character or ta- uh, channel and just a single D for data, difference, or distance, and so on. Um, personally, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this, uh, but I think once you get the hang of it uh, in a Go context, it will probably make sense. I don't have much Go experience, uh, by the way. And especially when the entire community does it this way, don't divert from best practices. Um, so in, in Clojure, for example, or any other kind of list, there is this practice that you uh, put a bang at the end of a function with side effects and a question mark at the end of a function when it's some kind of query. And Clojure also prefers a snake case naming convention, by the way. Um, so it's not, sh- uh, not as short as Go. But okay. Um, concluding arguments for this chapter go as follows, and I quote, Well-chosen names help to make code more obvious. When someone encounters the variable for the first time, their first guess about its behavior, made without much thought, will be correct. Choosing good names is an example of the investment mindset discussed in chapter 3. If you take a little extra time up front to select good names, it will be easier for you to work on the code in the future. In addition, you will be less likely to introduce bugs. Developing a skill for naming is also an investment. When you first decide to stop settling for mediocre names, you may find it frustrating and time-consuming to come up with good names. However, as you get more, as you get more experience, you'll find that it becomes uh, easier. And eventually, you'll get to the point where it makes uh, almost no extra time to, to choose good names so you will get the benefits almost for free, end quote. So, there you have it. Another two chapters done. And I hope this stuff was informative and you learned something. We discussed the traits of good comments. Uh, good comments do not repeat code. And if comments describe lower level details, they should provide precision. Yet when they describe higher level concepts, they improve the reader's intuition. And we also talked about interface documentation and cross-module comments, which describe the dependencies between modules or components. And I still think that these cross-module comments are a bit weird, because I find that high-level docu- that this kind of high-level documentation should reside somewhere else and not in the code. And in clean code, 
Uncle Bob gives the advice that if you decide to write a comment, the comment must be directly related to the entity you are commenting. And I feel like the nature of these cross-module comments is to describe things that are somewhere else. But yeah, Professor Ausserhout also says that these cross-module comments are often problematic to write. So they are very, very uncommon. But yeah, please let me know what you what your opinion about all of this is. You can reach me at podcast at allthingsunity.com. And last, we also discussed to choose good names and where this book, A Philosophy of Software Design, and Clean Code are in alignment finally again. They both provide like somewhat the same advice and Uncle Bob provides you with more practical advice and examples while Professor Oosterhout uh, provides you with some like more like high level advice combining the two will definitely lead to good names in game systems or software overall so yeah that's it for this episode and in the next episode we will continue with chapter 15 write the comment first which feels like TDD, but it would be like comment-driven development, maybe. We'll find out in the next episode, part 5 of a podcast series about a philosophy of software design by John R. Oosterhout. And yeah, thank you for listening, and make sure you join me in the next one as well. And please, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Currently, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music, and Podbean. It's greatly appreciated if you leave me a review and maybe some comments or feedback. Plus, you can contact me on podcast at allthingsunity.com. So, that's it. Thanks again. Till next time, and remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.